Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. We're going to the book of Joel. The book of Joel in the Old Testament. And we're going to begin our reading in chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. I don't think I have ever preached this passage. But I have quoted it many times, and it is very dear to my heart personally. And I'll have to tell you what caught my eye. I had begun work on a different passage this week, but what caught my eye are the first three words of chapter, or verse 12, chapter 2, yet even now. And once we understand the context of that, we'll realize how awesome those words are. This world was upside down. There's a lot of discrepancy about when Joel was written. Some give it an early date, some give it a later date. But God's people had been attacked. They had gone into captivity. We believe a lot, most believe it was post-exilic or after the exile. But he's coming back to them and he's saying, I know that your lives are upside down. I know they were torn apart. That army that came and destroyed almost everything. It was like the locusts. They just came and left nothing behind. And it was because of your sin. He's going to be honest about that. But he says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning. And rend your heart and not your garments. They they would tear their garments uh, to show signs of sorrow. He said that that could mean nothing. That that, that could could be singing without your heart being in it. It could be a religious exercise. It it, it could be praying when it's just words. He says, "I, I don't want religious exercises anymore. I don't want you to tear your clothes. I want you to rip your heart. Want to get in there to where things are going on. And now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And that word in the Hebrew is hesed, yes, and relenting of evil. And he says in verse 14, don't be presumptuous because he says, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. We don't know, but he's the only hope we have. We're not sure what God will do. He is still sovereign. We're not going to be able to repent and cry out to God and tear our hearts and make God do anything. Who knows what he will do? He said he might leave behind even a grain offering or a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion and consecrate or call together a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the people and sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders and He says, gather the children and the nursing infants and let the bridegroom come out of his 
room. He would usually not even have to show up for solemn assemblies, but he needs to this time, God says. As a matter of fact, the book of Deuteronomy said that a, a young man that has just been married has a certain period of time where he doesn't even have to show up for war. He is allowed to spend time with his new bride, but he says no. He needs to come to this. And, and the bride, out of her bridal chamber, he says, let the priests, verse 17, the Lord's ministers, let them weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach and a byword among the nations, that's the Gentiles. Why should they, among the peoples, say, where is their God? And then the Lord will be zealous for his land and have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove the northern army far from you. The Babylonians, Joel is writing to the southern kingdom. The Babylonians were the one that came and wrecked everything he said, I will remove them from you. And notice he will use all four points of the compass. When God cleans house, he does a good job. And he says, I will drive it into a parched and desolate land. In its vanguard or its front guard, I will drive it into the eastern sea and its rear guard into the western sea. And its stench will arise and its foul smell will come up for it has done Great things, not good things. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has also done great things. Do not fear, beast of the field, even. He says, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in you see how God's healing, it encompasses everything when he fixes it. When he brings healing to the land. Verse 23, so rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain, that would come in October, November, for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter. The latter rain would be around March and April. The threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And then I will make up to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the creeping locusts, the stripping locusts, and the gnawing locusts. My great army, which I sent among you, I, I sent them. I sent Babylon here. It wasn't like they pulled one on me. It wasn't like when Babylon came with Nebuchadnezzar and all of their armies in 586 that they had finally outdone me. They outdid you, but he said, I'm the one sent them. I was sovereign the whole time. He says, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And then my people 
will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God. And there is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. Just a quick note. In the Hebrew Bible, this is where chapter 2 ends. And chapter 3 would begin here at verse 28. And then when we read our final verse in 32, then the Hebrew Bible has a chapter 4, which in the English Bible is chapter 3. I only say that because it seems to be popular nowadays for people to assume that their favorite translation of the Bible is exactly like it was given to start with. Sorry about that. It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth. Blood, fire, and columns of smoke. And the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. I've tried to reframe over the years from saying that something is the worst or this is the best or this is the most important, making those extreme state, uh, statements of, uh, of supremacy sometimes we, we make them and then we wind up making them about something else as well. But I think I'm confident enough to say that I believe the worst the worst condition that anybody can ever face is hopelessness. I don't know of anything worse than hopelessness because hopelessness is not the situation itself, but it takes a situation that is temporary and it makes it seem permanent. It makes it seem fatal. It makes it seem terminal. It makes it seem as if it is inescapable uh, it, it is no longer that we have a problem, but the problem now has us. And when you're hopeless and you have zero hope, nowhere to turn, I believe that whatever else is going on in your life, whatever else brought it about, I believe that that is the worst possible condition that a person can ever face. In verse 31, he mentions something called the day of the Lord. He says this at a time when his people are in shambles. I mean, you've got to try to wrap your mind around it, or we do, as we try to imagine when Nebuchadnezzar in 586, 586 years before Christ, when he brought his Babylonian army into Jerusalem, imagine how they felt when he walked up to the front door of the temple 
And instead of stopping, I'm sure they thought, oh, if he goes in there, he's done for. Because there were areas in there that were forbidden for him to enter. He just walked right on through and nothing ever happened to him. He walked right by all the sacred furniture. And then he got to the Holy of Holies. And this is where God would have surely stopped him. He never slowed down. He went in and said, load all of this up. The ark, all of this stuff here. We're taking it back to Babylon. Later on, Belshazzar would take those vessels that he would take back with him. When he became king, he'd fill them up with wine. He had a bunch of harlots over to his palace. And he would use those very uh, uh, tumblers that came from that holy place to have a party and to relish in, in his sinful fleshliness. Now, what do you think God's people must be thinking? They must believe God is dead. God is gone. If, if this can happen then there is just no way that there is any hope whatsoever. And, and I want to get on into the text, but I, I have to tell you, you you got to, unless you've been on Mars lately, you got to just look at the news and go, wow, what, what is going on in this world? I mean, when we are fighting... And we are, we are absolutely going to bat. Even our own president is standing up and supporting this idea that we should be teaching our children from kindergarten to third grade about sexual identity issues. How, how, how crazy is that? How hedonistic can we be? And in New Jersey, they've passed a law that they are going to make it happen. They're going to force it on those young children. I, I, I know that you could just go on and on, but some of these things, I, I declare, it just absolutely blows my mind. And, 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 and what really guilt kills me is I, I see people that will boycott a church just over somebody saying a, a word they didn't like or, or not noticing them, but when it comes to a place like Disney that will have far more influence over your children probably at that age than we will, they make excuses. It's incredible. It's incredible what we are seeing, and it's almost like, boy, where is God? But I go back to those words, yet even now. And maybe for you today, it's not a national problem. Thought about this too. Maybe in your personal life, you hadn't had time to read the news lately. You've had a circus going on already inside of you. Maybe it was some difficulty that came your way. Maybe it was because of sin. Maybe it was just because of life or whatever it was in your life. But you just feel like your world is upside down. Or maybe you just feel like, man, I have totally lost control. I have no hope. It just seems like one day flows into the next. Nothing ever changes. And, and I'm trying to just muster up enough strength to, to, to keep myself together but deep down inside it's finally worn me to a frazzle and I'm tired and I need some help well good news God is not dead God comes to his people through the prophet Joel and he says yet even now 
He says, I can change this. But he gives them some instructions. We'll look at those. Yet even now, he says, first of all, you need to return. You need to return. In verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart. This is covenant language he's using here. Return to that covenant relationship that we had where I was God and you were my people and I took care of you and when you obeyed me and, and you did what I told you to do and, and, and you would listen to me and you respected my word, return unto me and, and let's renew that covenant together. And it is so awesome for you and I today and, uh, because finally Yahweh came. Yahweh came to this world and lived and died on a cross. As a matter of fact, this is the week of passion. This is the week that He came into Jerusalem and, 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 and knowing that at the end of the week that they would put Him on a cross. He did all of that so He could keep our end of the covenant. Because we could never do it. They could never do it and neither could we. We would always fail at it. So he came and he was a propitiation uh, or a satisfaction of the wrath of God. His own wrath. He said, I'm going to satisfy my own anger against your sin by dying for you. If you can say no to that, you're a fool. God gave his life for you. And for me, and he kept our end of the covenant, so if we put our faith and trust in him, then we are 100% righteous, declared so by God himself. He says, return to that. Return to that. And for us today, I, I, I know for them it was a different situation. He had not come yet, but for us He has. And, and, and I can just tell you, He says, hey, let's get serious about this. In verse 15, He says, blow a trumpet in Zion. And then He repeats it. Uh, this, he said it in verse 1, and then He says it again. And He says, gather everybody together. Those that normally are excused from meetings like this, he says, no, we need to come together. Those nursing mothers and those young men that just got married, they may not have to go to war, but they need to come to this. And those brides that, that are newly married or about to be, there's a lot of places they may not have to go, but they need to come together for this. And I'm not going to try to twist it and make it a thing about coming to church, but I guess that is about what I'm about to do. But I want to tell you, Cornerstone, we need a coming together. We need to assemble ourselves. We got to get past. I, I, I mean this with, with, with all the love in the world, but this business of, well, you know, I'd be there, but I have to work a lot. Or, or we're, you know, pastor, we're just so, so busy. And, and you know with the kids and all of that, they got all kinds of things going on. And there's just so little time and, and all of that. Well, well, man, there's a day coming when there will be time. Time won't even exist. There will be eternity. And we're going to spend that eternity somewhere forever. And I'm not saying that, you know, we need to come into church. Oh, boy, that'll make God give you a thumbs up or He'll put a little star by your name like we used to in Sunday school if we read our Bibles daily or we were willing to lie and say we did. I'm not saying that to you. 
But I am telling you this, we have a hard time sometimes getting together. And today's a great crowd, and especially with the group that's in Florida. So I don't know about saying all of this to you because you're here and I'm glad you are. But I'm telling you something, we got to get beyond some of this stuff. He says, hey, blow a trumpet. And when they blew the trumpet, they knew something was going on. The enemy was either coming over the wall or God had something to say that everybody needed to hear. And, and I'll just tell you, we, we need to do a little better in our churches at coming together. Praying together and hearing the Word of God. On Wednesday nights, man, alive. We have such a great time with the guys. And, and we're going through uh, Kent Hughes' book, The Disciplines of a Godly Man. But if I were honest with you, I'd have to tell you that usually the guys that are there, and I hope they're not offended by it, they, they won't be. But they're, they're, up, they're up in years. Some of them are nearly 40 Not a lot of young men come. A young, young men with young children that are trying to figure out how, how to be the best husband they need to be. Wow, what a class for you. And trying to be the best father that you need to be. You're the guys that, that really need to be there. And, and to not just hear from me, but to hear from some of these other guys as we take a look at what it means to be a disciplined, godly man. We need to return. Secondly, we need to repent. He says, my people, he says, you need to repent. He said in verse 13, rent your heart and, and not your garments. Tearing your clothes is a, a religious deal. He says, I, I don't need religious deals. We've had enough of those. You brought me calves and killed them and lambs and slaughtered them, and, and you've lifted up incense and done all kinds of things. I don't want that anymore. I want your heart. I don't want you just to do some physical outward activity. I want something more than that. As a matter of fact, Jesus said Himself in Matthew 15, He said, This people honors Me with their lips, but their heart is far away from Me. Boy, they sing to the top of their lungs, but it's not their heart that's, that's near me. It's far away. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. I pray to God that I am never found by God as one who teaches that which men like instead of Him. I hope both can like it. But if it comes down to either preaching what you're going to like or what he's going to like, you'll just have to forgive me because I'm going to preach what he says. And I'm going to preach his truth. And sometimes it won't feel good, but that's what we have to have. We are at a place right now. We are surrounded by hopelessness. There's chaos in the world. And I can tell you, not just in places like Ukraine, but I'm talking about in the church here in America. I'm talking about right now in the Southern Baptist Convention. Boy, Satan has got his claws in that. And I don't care all that much about denominations and all of that kind of thing, but I do do know this, we have thousands of missionaries all over the world and all of that's going to suffer if we don't get our act together and return and repent before God. 
Metanoia is a Greek word for repent in the New Testament. Meta is change and nous is mind. It is a renewing of the mind. You start thinking differently. You quit arguing about sin in your life. You quit asking dumb questions like, well, preacher, do you think that a man or person can do this and still go to heaven? I'm so sick and tired of those asinine questions. That's not an ugly word. But I'm so tired of that. What do you you want me to do? You want me to check for you? You want me to see if I can get in the database in heaven and see if your name's still on the list? What is it that you're wanting to do? Look, why do you want to go to heaven? I started asking that. Why do you want to go to heaven? Because heaven is going to be a place where we worship God. I can tell you both hell and heaven are places of torment for people who don't want to worship God. I think people have turned heaven into, if you will excuse me, Disneyland. It's a place, oh, we're going to have the coolest time up there. The bass are bigger, the boats are faster. Amen? (laughs) I thought I'd get one. Oh, man, we're going to have a mansion. Such a terrible translation in John 14 of that word. But people will build my mansion next door to Jesus. You're kind of hogging up the space, don't you think? There's a lot of us. Maybe we want to live next door to Jesus. Oh, yeah. I know I've said it before. But I think people think, well, heaven is just a place that whatever it is here, it'll be better there. If i got a single wide here, I'll have a double wide there. With a deck. Oh, yeah. That's heaven, buddy. Just build my double wide. Pull my double wide in there next door to Jesus. Why do you want to go to heaven? We had to dance, change things, worry, fret, fire people. We've had to do all those kinds of things to get people to come to church. And we've pretty well failed at that because here is where we come and we worship God. And I'm not saying it's the only place you can worship God. But if you really don't find all of this appealing, if we've not danced fast enough to get your attention here, then why would you want to spend eternity doing this? We need to repent. We also, thirdly, need to rejoice. Rejoice, he says in verse 23. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord, for the Lord your God is giving you the early rain and the latter rain. He's poured all of that out on us. Man, what an awesome blessing from God. He says you ought to rejoice. You don't deserve this, Israel. You don't deserve this, Judah, that you turn your back on me, and yet here I am. I'm coming back to you instead of extending a fist. I'm extending a hand of love and forgiveness. and, 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 And boy, you should rejoice when it comes to that. I think about a passage that we quote a lot, but we quote it out of context. I'd love to clear that up for us for a second. It's in Isaiah 55. You can just listen. You don't have to turn there, but 
We quote that verse 8 in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. And then also a little later in verse 11, he says, And my word that goes forth from my mouth will not return unto me empty. We usually quote both of those verses in the context of, You better look out, God has kicked in the front door. May I read them in context? Isaiah 55, 6. I'll start there. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God he will abundantly pardon. Why? That's not something we do. We got their feet to the fire. We're fed up, right? We think it's time they learned a lesson, right? If they're not going to show some sorrow, if they don't want to ask for forgiveness, then I'm under no obligation to even fool them. God says, this is why I'm going to do it. Verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, declares the Lord. He says, I don't think like you. Isn't that awesome? For as the heavens are higher, verse 9, than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God says, I will forgive because I can. And he says, when I say I will, and he has, he says, nothing can stop it. Maybe you feel like, well, I don't know. I, if you just knew, Pastor, what I've done. I, I don't. <clears throat> and you may say you don't want to know. I probably don't. But God does. And maybe you wouldn't forgive yourself. But you're not God. And he says, I don't think like you. Maybe you feel like, you know what? God's probably had about enough of me. God says, no, I'm not like you. When I just say I'm going to forgive, I forgive. Paul tells, or uh, I think it's Paul. He says, if it's not, God will forgive me. He says, even when our hearts condemn us, he says, remember, God is greater than our heart. God can do it. We need to rejoice in that. Fourthly, we need to remember, verse 25, he says, I will make up to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. And then notice how God speaks to Joel about the locusts, the creeping locusts, the stripping locusts, the gnawing locusts. My great army, I, I sent them. I sent the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was big and bad. 
Well, that is until I put him out in the forest and in the pasture walking around like an animal with his fingernails got so long he couldn't even use his hands to eat. You remember that? God says, I took him down a few notches, but I was always in charge. But think about this and think about what you've been through. Maybe sin, bad decisions, whatever in your life. You would describe it the, the way he did the locust here. It's just creeping and it's stripping and it's gnawing and it's constant. What a descriptor using uh, locust here. There are at least nine different Hebrew words for locust. I'll give you the... The, the, the quick version of all of this, most likely they're grasshoppers. They're not really a special kind of grasshoppers, but there's something that happens in certain climates, in certain places in the world, where these grasshoppers type creatures, they just multiply and they hatch out like by the millions and the hundreds of millions all at once. And, and it's a climate sort of thing that has to make it take place, and then they begin to swarm. Raymond Dillard, he uh, wrote a commentary on Joel. Let, let me just tell you what he says about locusts. He said, a swarm across the Red Sea in 1889 was estimated to cover 2,000 square miles. And when they leave those 2,000 square miles... There is nothing left. Nothing left. A swarm is estimated to have up to 120 million per mile in it. And then disease will break out afterwards when they do die. And it will further aggravate everything because of the putrefaction of millions of locusts and their dead bodies. And they breed typhus and other diseases. And I believe that it was 125 miles out to sea that we have actually found locusts swarming. How in the world do they get there? I, I, I saw this blob of fire ants the other day in a, during a flood. Maybe you've seen pictures of those. There'll be a wad of fire ants this big, I mean huge, bigger than a, a tub like you would take a bath in. And they all come together, and it's all a wad of fire ants. And what happened was when these floods come, these fire ants get together and they make themselves float. These, these little critters, buddy, they can survive. See, that's a great picture of the world we live in. I don't know how well butterflies do, but those blooming, that's a special breed. Blooming fire ants, boy, they can survive when nothing else will. Kick their nest over, that'll show them. Boy, nothing worse than to be standing around out in the yard enjoying a nice day and you hadn't looked down in a while and all of a sudden, I, th I think they have a, a signal they give. They wait till one is in your britches all the way to here. And then they give off a doot, 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 doot. They don't want him to bite yet. When a thousand of them get on you, they holler, yee-haw. And then you start having church. The locusts 
when it comes to life are worse. They strip and they leave nothing behind. I love what God says. He says, I will restore the years. Maybe when you look back at your life, you go, Pastor, I've wasted years, not months, not weeks. Years I could have been speaking into my children's life about God and things that really matter. I wasted it. They're gone. I can never get them back. I think about in the book of Ruth. It's a beautiful book, but it doesn't start out that way. Elimelech and Naomi, they take Malon and Kilion, their two sons. They leave the place where God has put them, which is Bethlehem, the house of bread. And they leave and they go to Moab. Naomi comes back, but the sons don't come back. They die in Moab. Matter of fact, Elimelech died in Moab. I can't tell you how many times I've seen parents weep and cry. They went to Moab and they took their kids with them. The parents are back. They're in church. They got their kids on the prayer list, though, because kids didn't come back. How did they get there? You took them there. You took them there. If you really were honest with yourself, a lot of times, I'm not saying always, but a lot of times we take them there. We allow things in our family and in our home. Our priorities get so skewed. And the next thing you know, we forget that what one generation does in moderation, the next generation does in excess. And we can't believe it. We're praying for them and begging God to help them. A lot of parents go to Moab. They come back. The kids are still there. It hurts. It's sad. It feels hopeless. But God says, I can restore the years. The years that bad decisions Stupidity, selfishness, laziness, sorriness, maladjusted priorities. He said, I can restore those years. Number five, he says, receive. Receive. Three things quickly. Verse 26, his sustenance. He says, you will have plenty to eat. The locusts left nothing behind, but he said, I'll take care of you. I'll meet your physical needs. You know, (laughs) I love telling the stories about when Loretta and I were first married. She was just so excited about being married to me. She just don't remember a lot of this, I don't guess. Thank you, Lord, for being merciful. (laughs) Man, I love that woman. She's helping me with my belt this morning. I said, she's going kind of slow. I said, I'm going to have to get me a younger woman to help me get my clothes on. She just goes, mm-hmm. Boy, there's a lot in that mm-hmm. Oh, I wouldn't trade her for life. When we were first married, we had nothing. <laughs> I worked, I pastored and worked a job, and she worked a job. And we still had nothing. Good Lord of mercy. I bought a refrigerator for our first house, our little honeymoon cottage. Ooh. 
I bought it out of a wood shop where a guy kept beer in it. I took it out, sanctified it, of course. Then I spray painted it, and his sides was about to rust off of it. It had one of those, it had one door. You remember those? And it had a little door for the freezer. And after about two weeks, the freezer was about that big around. You remember those? And you had to beat and chunk and hammer and get ice out of it. And all. It was crazy. It, it was awesome. We, I, I, I killed a wild boar. There's nothing says I love you like bringing home a wild boar. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can tell you this. We ate every bite of it. And when it was all gone, I'd had the head mounted. We even stared at that head for a while, wondering if we boiled it long enough, could we eat it? I learned something through that, though. It's okay to live hand to mouth if it's his hand in your mouth. He'll take care of you. We've never done without. He's so good to us. His sustenance, his satisfaction, verse 26, you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. Satisfaction is something that has eluded so many in our world. A hundred thousand last year died due to drug overdoses because they were trying to find something they've never found. And they're willing to risk their life to get it. Satisfaction. And then thirdly, his salvation. Verse 32, and it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is some human volition there. We call on his name. He will save us. And last of all, as we close today, return, repent, rejoice, remember, respond. Last of all, we need to respond. Verse 28, and it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Well, this is new. When a Jew in this day and to this very day, even in modern times as far as I know, Orthodox Jews, men, Jewish men, they have a morning prayer. A serious Orthodox Jew will pray every morning of his life, and he thanks God that he was not born a slave, that he was not born a Gentile, and that he was not born a woman. <laughs> what a prayer. But I want to tell you something. God says, you know what? When I pour out my spirit, and I'd remind you as we close today, in Acts 2, when Peter preached, he reached all the way back to Joel, and he brought this passage into his sermon. And he said, this is what the prophet Joel was preaching about. He says, man, it's not just limited to men. It's not just limited to those that are of high regard. He says, slaves and servants and men and women, I will pour out 
my spirit on all of them. And I understand that being a pastor is something uh, that, that Paul restricts for men only. So I, I can't be, a, a woman can't be a pastor any more than I can be a wife, okay? And I know outside this church you can do all of that, but, but that doesn't work in real life. But when it comes to prophesying or declaring forth the Word of God, women, God has given you the green light as well. Tell people, not just one-on-one witnessing, but declare what God has said to you. I think sometimes people will think that we're still saying, no, women need to be quiet and keep their mouth shut and all of that. There was some special things going on at Corinth, and Paul was trying to get a handle on that church. But I want to tell you, God has declared that I have poured out my Spirit on everybody, male and female, and slaves, servants, those that were thought to be nobody. As a matter of fact, by love and Isaiah, God says that one day the eunuch will be able to approach me and the eunuch will be able to testify of me. A eunuch was considered unclean and unfit for anything to do with God. Until you get to Acts 8, Philip meets one. He gets baptized and winds up being the first missionary back home in Africa. How about that? That's something new. God sent His Spirit. We need to respond. We need to let His Spirit empower us. He said, I will pour it out on all flesh, basar, or mankind, but it's all flesh in the Hebrew. Everybody. This should be good news. I am reminded, though, of what Paul said in... 2 Corinthians, I believe. He said, the message that we preach is the aroma of life to some. But it is the aroma of death to others. So I know. Some won't care a thing about what we've preached today. Some won't care a thing about what Joel said. This business of getting saved, they hadn't done it, not going to do it. It's just... It's not in them. Gets on their nerves to hear you talk about it. I got that. I feel sorry for you. I hope God will change your heart. Because one day it will matter. And then it will matter forever. But for those that are willing to hear it, this is good news, folks. Yet even so, even now, In the midst of all the chaos that goes on in our world, we have an awesome God that's willing to forgive us of our sins, to make us right with Himself, to heal this land. And I I, I understand. I don't think that we're ever going to see the day. I don't think the day's ever coming when... Politicians in Washington are all going to get together and fall on their face before God. I know God could do that, but he's not preaching to the Babylonians here. He said, I drove them out of their land. He said, I left them a desolate place. You know where Babylon, ancient Babylon would be in the modern world? Iraq. Do you know if they didn't have all what they would have to sell 
sand. Other than gold, I looked it up. The only export they have, they do have a few gold mines, but I'm going to tell you something. If Saudi Arabia, you know, the guys that have so, so much money. Man, if you live in Kuwait, there are no taxes. There would be if our government got a hold of them, but no taxes, no name for taxes. They're so rich. But what a desolate place. When you look at where ancient Babylon is, it was once the most powerful city in all the world. Now it's a tourist attraction. You can go over there and look at a few torn down walls and some bricks lying around. God's not saying, look, I'm going to get the Babylonians on board and everybody. I, I, I'm not expecting that. But he says to my people, no matter how much is going on around you, if you will turn to me, repent, get right yourself, tear your heart, not your clothes. He said, man, I can change everything. Let's pray. God, I pray right now for our world, for our nation, but I, I pray especially right now, God, for Someone that may be here today, I don't know, that their life, they, they hadn't had much time to think about Ukraine. There's a war going on inside of them, God, that has gone on for years. That's where they have no peace, God. I pray for that person. I pray, Lord, for that person that feels hopeless. Where they feel like that the years they've wasted, the years... Not weeks, but they feel like years are gone that they can never, ever reclaim God. And that's true. But Lord, you can restore what could have been in those years. You can bring that back. Lord, if we're willing to humble ourselves before you. I pray for that person today that feels hopeless. They feel like you don't have a word for them. They have judged themselves the way they would judge others. I pray, God, you'll help them to see, Lord, that your ways are not their ways. Your thoughts are not their thoughts. I pray, God, they'd be willing right now in this precious and quiet moment to say, God, I don't understand all that that man said today, but it seems like if I repent, and I'm serious about giving my heart and life to you. That you can bring healing and peace and grace where there hasn't been any for a long time. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at ServantsWay.com or email us at office at ServantsWay.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.